Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. For the News and Observer, I'm Don Vaughn, your host for this episode of Under the Dome for the week of Monday, March 20th, 2023. Today I'm here with my politics team colleagues at the legislature, Abi Bajpai, Luciana Perez, Uribe Ignasi, and Lars Dolder. This past week was another busy week at the legislature with the long session moving along pretty, pretty busy. Like I think some people have said not not five big news things a day, please thank you. But uh, it looks like that's what we're getting. And we're going to recap that and then tell you actually what's uh, what's coming up and some of the, the wild highlights. But first up, let's talk to Avi about something outside of the legislative building, but was is pretty closely tied to the legislative building. And that is the North Carolina Supreme Court. So uh, what do we miss? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was a busy week this week in North Carolina politics. Um, we had two big cases back in front of the Supreme Court, um, both cases that could have big ramifications for elections going down the line, elections for basically the rest of the decade here in North Carolina. Um, on Tuesday, we had um, the re- the big redistricting case, uh, Harper versus Hall. Um, and on Wednesday, we had the big voter ID case, that's Holmes versus Moore. And basically with both cases, you have a situation where, um, you know, you have an outgoing uh, Supreme Court, uh, Democratic majority, Democratic majority on the Supreme Court last year, issuing two really big rulings in both of these cases. There are sort of big losses for Republicans. Republicans and Democrats have been fighting in court over both of these topics for a long time now. Uh, redistricting, political maps um, that are going to be used in elections, and also voter ID. Um, Republicans have been trying to pass a voter ID law, um, voter ID bill into law, um, and have it go into effect for more than a decade. And every single time it's um, bumped up against uh, legal challenges, federal court, state court. So yeah, a very big week at the Supreme Court. Um, The Republican majority on the Supreme Court, which was just elected in last uh, last year's election in November, agreed to rehear both of these cases. So you basically have rulings from the Democratic majority in December, and then within two months of that, you had the Republican justices say, um, look, we're going to rehear these cases. We're going to have the attorneys come back in and uh, go through a new round of arguments. And in both cases, um, I was there at the Supreme Court on Tuesday, and then I'm covering the case on Wednesday as well. Uh, you know, it's it's basically the situation where you have a lot of the same arguments being hashed out in court. You just have the attorneys arguing in front of a different uh, set of justices on the bench. And, you know, the court basically looks um, poised in both of these cases to um, issue some very different, dramatically different rulings in both these cases was the vibe over there? Was it, you know, Democrats, the majority did this last time. Now it's Republicans. We're going through these motions again. Everybody knows how this is going to play out. Was it, was there, you know, was it any tension at all? Was it just that you had your turn? Now it's our turn because of the power. 
Yeah, you know, it is tense at times. Um, it kind of is true. Everyone sort of knows where this is headed. Um, there's, we're not really expecting any big surprises or left turns ahead. Um, you know, the Democratic uh, justices issued their ruling when they were in power. Um, they were voted out by the voters. The, there were two seats on the ballot last November. Republicans won both. And as soon as that happened, you had people on both sides of the aisle expect fully that, you know, there's going to be a Republican Supreme Court. They're going to be much more amenable to the arguments that the legislature is making. So, I mean, you kind of have this situation where, you know, attorneys get up, start their arguments, and then they're sort of immediately interrupted by justices on the other side of the aisle. They're asking them the questions, um, peppering them with all kinds of different, you know, um, different sort of uh, flaws in their arguments and going back and forth. But basically, um, it, it, it sort of seems like uh, we, we sort of know where this is going. Um, and where it's going is... Uh, Basically, it looks like two big wins for the legislature when it comes to the maps that are going to be in place for the 2024 election and also elections going past that. And also for voter ID, as I was saying before, voter ID um, has we haven't had an election with voter ID being required. We added the um, the amendment. I guess it was on a ballot. But in, in that but yeah, but we haven't had an election where you have to show photo ID to vote. Um, 2024 could be the first election where that's required. And 2024 is a huge election, you know, presidential election year. Um, control of Congress is is up for grabs. Um, you know, nationally, Republicans have a very slim majority. So if the Republicans here in North Carolina can enact a congressional map where they have uh, a bigger sort of, you know, um, instead of a 7-7 split, it's a 10-3 split or 11-4 split. So you have ramifications basically for up and down the ballot, presidential election, control of Congress, control of General Assembly. Um, so very big dealings in the, in the court this week. So where do things stand now? Um, we're waiting now to see when the justices issue their rulings. There's no sort of rule for when we can expect that. There's no time limit. So it's really up to their discretion. So we'll see when that happens and keep everyone posted. Porters will have their pre-rights ready. We do a lot of pre-writing. It's like pre-gaming, but not as fun. <laughs> so also uh, back over at the legislature, speaking of, uh, and speaking of party divisions, uh, Democratic Governor Roy Cooper released his budget proposal, first to reporters, theoretically anyway. Uh, myself and other reporters were there for the press conference about the budget, but they did not let us see the budget before we had to ask questions about the budget. So um it's also Sunshine Week, which is a celebration of open government and transparency. So there wasn't a whole lot of transparency on what we were actually asking questions about. So it was a lot of very quickly asking the governor a few questions about what he said, which and the main takeaways of the budget that uh, might impact the most people directly is how much raises are going to be for state employees, for teachers and principals, for all the support staff like bus drivers. Anyone who uh, has a child in school or is just aware, works in a school, knows that there's a pretty large bus driver shortage across the state. And a lot of times buses just don't show up and kids don't have a way to get to school. So if you're in the newsobserver.com, our local government reporters have written a lot about the actual direct impact of that. So Cooper is pitching 
18% teacher and principal raises over two years. Of course, this is a two-year budget, so it's not all in one year. Um, 9.5% for bus drivers, which is something I asked about, considering the shortage. Uh, why weren't they also offered 18%? And Cooper's response was this phrase I think people have heard before where, you know, people disagree about Leandro spending and everything else, but they all agree that there should be a good teacher in every classroom and a good principal in every school. So that's why he explained his focus there. And then state employees, his pitch is 8% raises. And state employees, I hear from them all the time. The writing about the budget is, you know, why are we always the afterthought? Why are our raises always less uh, or we get less attention? And that includes from both the Democratic governor's proposal, the Republican written budget. And that's happening again at this level. But Cooper doesn't have the same power that he did before when there were drawn out budget fights. So it's just uh, it's a proposal. It's what he's asking for. But whether or not they're going to listen, you know. Yeah. When I, you get at what I was thinking, Dawn, our listeners are probably familiar with the power dynamics in state government. Um, and so we'll realize that the governor's budget proposal doesn't carry a ton of weight with the Republican majority, nearly supermajority legislature. What have you heard already from Republican leaders in the legislature about what for sure they're going to change um, in, in the proposal they got from Cooper? Well, it was, I was in Joint Approach Thursday morning where state budget director uh, Kristen Walker, who's part of Cooper's administration, uh, went through the budget. Pr- it was a very similar presentation to what she gave reporters the day before. And there are a few technical questions, some about you know transportation funding and that sort of thing and what Cooper is asking for. And then uh, Senator Ralph Heiss, the Spruce Pine Republican, who's one of the head budget writers in the Senate, uh, basically sort of said something at the end of like, okay, and now we're going to start the actual budget stuff soon. So because, again, this is the, you know, Cooper doesn't have the power that he did a couple of years ago when when there were more Democrats in the um, in the Senate, particularly since there's not a Republican supermajority in the Senate. And they do listen. Just, you know, hearing on the House side, Representative Donnie Lambeth, one of the Republican head budget writers, talk about how they will review the governor's proposal. And what's happening this week, as you all listen, is that uh, the House members, since they're first with the budget, are going through, okay, this is what the governor is asking. What's some things that we might be interested in. Of course, you know, we uh, reporters ask Berger more all the time of, you know, did you like anything in it? And I don't think we got any enthusiastic yes they want to do. Um, I believe both of them, both in their statements and to reporters that day and the next day, you know, really likened Cooper to uh, federal Democratic uh, politicians and to states that have Democratic leaders and why they think they don't like his idea, essentially. So maybe we'll see some of it. You know, uh, There'll be definitely something messing with the, uh, the governor's powers, I think. Um, whether or not they're doing that to get at Cooper since he's almost out of there, or if the next governor is Josh Stein or Mark Robinson and making sure that the legislature is the center of power. That seems like a, a pretty key thing that North Carolina likes to do. Yeah, well, you mentioned the Senate, and they have a supermajority now, at least from Senate leader Phil Berger, was a Republican, of course, he released in a statement a pretty coruscating review of Cooper's budget. We both kind of scoffed at it. Yeah, especially, I mean, the 18%, that is just, it's not going to happen. No. It's a lot of it. It's just, it's just not going to happen. It's an ask and 
somebody on Twitter said like, when are they going to vote on the budget? And I'm like, oh, no, this isn't the budget they're going to vote on. <laughs> it's like, it's going to be months from now. So uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some spicy house floor debate, uh, Medicaid expansion, which Luciana wrote about again this week. And I feel like there's how many Medicaid expansion stories can can we produce, right? Um, so we'll come back and talk about that, what's coming up this week, and then our picks for headliner of the week. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. You're listening to Under the Dome. I'm News and Observer Politics reporter Don Vaughn here with our team, Avi Bajpai, Luciana Perez, Uribe Ginasi, and Lars Dolder. Before the break, we were talking about the Supreme Court, about the budget, and about the power dynamic in the legislature. And some of that was in play this past week with these various gun bills, including um, the House. So Avi and Lars, you all uh, had a, a view of how things panned out. So give us uh, give us those spicy quote recap. I mean, I, we should start by just just, you know, mentioning the bill. I mean, this is something that um, has been a priority for Republicans again for a long time. They're moving full throttle ahead with, you know, some of these top legislative priorities, getting them out of the legislature, getting them to Cooper's desk and then testing the strength of his veto and sort of uh, you know, potentially some of these bills showing him that, you know, he, he can't, um, Democrats can't sustain his veto. Um, this was Senate Bill 41, this um, a collection of gun bills um, that uh, originated in both chambers in the Senate and the House. Um, obviously, the sort of standout bill here, the Senate proposal, the one that has drawn the most attention and controversy is the, the pistol purchase permit repeal. This is something that Republicans have wanted to um, get rid get rid of for a long time this requirement in state law that says if you want to buy a handgun in North Carolina, you have to get a permit from your local sheriff. Um, and that process includes a background check. There's been a lot of back and forth between Republicans and Democrats and advocates on both sides. We've reported on that um, throughout last month and this month. But um, the sort of um, the gist of it is, you know, um, uh, three proposals here, pistol permit repeal, Another uh, proposal that would allow people who are attending um, religious services at church can. Yeah, church. Yeah. <laughs> the shorthand. That's, that's the insider shorthand. headline would be uh, church guns. That's the shorthand. But basically, this this effort by Republicans to to sort of make sure that um, there's there's a bit of a loophole. They say um, churches that also operate operate as schools or have attached schools. Um, you know, they want to make sure that people congregants, people going to religious services, can. Uh, carry concealed weapons, concealed handguns to protect themselves. And then the third thing is just, um, you know, this, this sort of bipartisan measure, um, safe storage awareness um, initiative. But uh, yeah, this this bill passed the Senate last month where Democrats offered up a couple of amendments and it was on the House floor on uh, Wednesday. And again, Democrats tried to offer up a couple of amendments, amendments which everyone in the chamber knows aren't really going to go anywhere. But uh, they, they didn't get a chance to um, have their amendments put, be put up for a vote. Right. Yeah, it was interesting. I was on the House floor. Um, Speaker Moore, Tim Moore, and then 
rules chairman, Destin Hall, they enacted some of the technical authority they have, which is within their rights. I'll come to that in just a second. Right. We asked, or you asked more about it uh, after the session about why he did that. Right. And, and there's nothing that was strictly unprecedented about what they did, but effectively it, it's, it shut down further. Debate. Motion to move to the previous question. That's right. Yeah. And so while he didn't totally prevent Democrats from speaking on the bill, it did maybe from their perspective, prematurely conclude that conversation. Uh, and interestingly, as part of the rules around that arrangement, they have to afford the minority party leader three minutes to speak. And so that is Representative Robert Reeves from Chatham County, and he took his opportunity to speak. The majority leader also has the chance, but he waved this time. He waved yeah. his, his minutes, yeah. And in that speech, and you wrote a, a, a great article about it, Avi, maybe you want to talk a little bit more there, but... Um, one of the big quotes, of course, was that he said, uh, said to his fellow Democrats, yeah, to, to the to the caucus, he knew they were angry. Um, he said they were mad as hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was I was debating to myself, as you could probably see on my face, whether I repeated verbatim. But hey, we uh, we didn't say it right. He said it on the floor. Uh, and so it's interesting to his caucus. He's speaking. He's acknowledging how angry they were. He was explicit, though, in his speech, too, that he recognized it wasn't something that the uh, speaker couldn't do. It's within the rules. It's there within the yeah. rules. But he made a point of saying that had he the same authority as leader of the House, that he would have done something different. This might be the first time that there's been a little House floor rule tension since the 2019 budget veto override vote. So we'll see if uh, if this is an indicator of anything. Incidentally, speaking of Deb Butler that, that you're bringing up from 2019, she uh, she was one of the Democrats who offered an amendment. She tried, yes, and um, and she tried to appeal the decision by Speaker Moore to stop that, asking for it to go to vote. Um, and he conferred with with some of the clerks and decided that it didn't work out. No, I think we'll see, especially with some cases in the House rules and like season you over her at those spelling how as, as was just said during COVID, we'll call it COVID come by out uh, whether you want you know run hell run on. Uh, and then they did it. And then we'll see as all of these, these issues. But oh, I just like you were saying, this is super free word and in a way, like Shen, and then that it, you know, we'll live as Democrats and majority and out of his Republicans. And so we know all this is going to well out. And then uh, John still suddenly, we know how this is still hell yeah, because they're just sending back to Cooper all the things that he vetoed before that we're not able to be over. And now, don't doubt like what white thing where if everyone is agreeing, but it is the Medicaid strange, I mean, more or less, uh, uh, side 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 side. so those Louisiana just let people you know what we we kind of kind of moving things a little further, and then and when what's coming. Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. I was about to say that one thing that is kumbaya is Medicaid expansion so far. Um, at least the past two weeks, it's been um, the bill has been moving along pretty fast, first in the House, and then on Wednesday, it passed the Senate with a vote of 44 to 2. And uh, from there, it's going to get a House concurrence vote and should go to uh, Governor Roy Cooper for a veto or um, for passage into law. Um, the main sticking point there might be that it is tied to the budget, and so maybe the kumbaya will dissolve at that. We'll, we'll see what else is in the budget. I know. I'm looking forward to that's like, yeah, the budget is fun for this kind of. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting just to wait and see how they leverage that because obviously Cooper has been a major point of, of his now 
already been concluding governorship. He's been waiting for Medicaid passage, and now they could use that to force mm-hmm. some other policy through the budget. Sure. I mean, it's um, a lawmaker told me that, you know, they could put like Disneyland in there, whatever. <laughs> um, so it's Cooper. It's like Cooper wants the win. But also, if something happened where it didn't happen, if Medicaid expansion didn't happen, what are they going to tell those thousands of constituents in rural areas, which are you know majority Republican, a lot of them, when that they can't have health care or the continuation or have the option for that. So it's um that like on the podcast last week, uh, Republican Senator Vicki Sawyer said that with the whatever abortion legislation, it's not just the bill. If they end up passing a bill this session, it's that's going to follow you not just to your next campaign, but for the rest of your political career. And healthcare is one of those things too. If it directly affects your constituent, they're going to remember how you voted. And and even now, as Medicaid expansion is poised to roll out benefits to hundreds of thousands of North Carolinians, there's actually risk of many hundreds of thousands losing their current benefits, right? Yeah. So there's kind of a crossover in timeline potentially where expansion has to pass with the budget. And then after that, the federal government needs to approve a start date once expansion passes. And then from there, there's kind of like a 90 day timeline where they approve that. And essentially, it'll take a little bit for that to kick into place. And on April 1st, um, a COVID-19 federal regulation ends, which allowed people to not be disenrolled. So people who are no longer eligible are going to start coming off the Medicaid like rolls. And essentially, there's going to be a crossover where people might be disenrolled and then become eligible again if expansion passes. And a lot, of, a lot of the people in that total number where they talk about how what, who expansion could help, I believe, are those that would have the continuation that are already already part of the system. And um, Department of Health and Human Services estimates um, about three hundred thousand or so people could be affected by that disenrollment loss of benefits. All right. Well, we're about at a time. Uh, also, ex- this week. You know, at, this is what Senate Leader Phil Berger told reporters on Thursday afternoon. So by the time Tuesday rolls around, everything can change. But as Berger is good at saying, he's what he expects is never any hard fast. But probably the only Senate votes will be on Tuesday. There's not a lot of else going on. The lawmakers that have bills haven't gotten them back from drafting yet in that process. So the senators may not even be in session on Wednesday, Thursday this week. So we'll we'll find out if that uh, that pans out or not. And then, of course, in the House, like you were saying, it'll be the the vote on Medicaid expansion. Also, in House Committee and Commerce is finally the that bill because the, for so many weeks, uh, Representative Jason Sane and told me and others that the bill was going to be filed, and then it was finally filed. Uh, that would um, legalize online sports wagering. And the reason there's been a lot of waiting for that is because it lost barely uh, last session and and it was going to happen again. And where's the bill? And so that's kind of the, um, the here we are, the bill's here, it's moving through committee. And Zane told me that could get a House floor vote March 28th, maybe around that. So anyway, uh, quickly moving on to headliner of the week. Since we're talking about sports, I'll go first. My headliner of the week is March Madness Basketball. Um, go Hokies. Yeah, all right. The Hokies men already lost to the NIT first game. We don't need to talk about that, but women are number one seed in the NCAA tournament, so yay for that. And uh, too bad that UNC didn't think it was important enough to uh, take their NIT spot. So that's my um, little ACC trash talking. 
to, to quote Phil Berger, shot fire. <laughs> so there's a lot of my one of my favorite things is all like the the sports trash talking on the house and center floor is pretty great. So, um, all right, well, Lars, what's uh, who or what is your headliner? Mine's not as fun. Uh, I, I everyone knows I would think about the banking crisis. Wait, crisis is too strong to say now, but. Um, yeah, the, absolutely. There's panic over what's happening. I think it was Friday that Silicon Valley Bank collapsed unexpectedly, uh, and and the ensuing chaos has sort of roiled the global financial market. And interestingly, as part of that, uh, Credit Suisse uh, came out saying that they will have to borrow about $54 billion from the Swiss Central Bank. It's a massive institution. It's another example of of panic and the ramifications that can come of that. Uh, and interestingly, it's sort of connected to my headliner there is that um, Jeff Jackson, now a North Carolina congressman, released a TikTok about it, uh, but I won't get into the details of all of what he said, but it went viral. Um, and so interesting if you want to hear from a, a Democratic congressman, his take on that. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. He's pretty good at social media. Um, Avi, who or what is your headliner of the week? Yeah, really quickly, I'm going to take us back to the legislature. Uh, so uh, we got 911 calls in the um, kind of really pretty scary situation that House Speaker Tim Moore and uh, Representative David Willis and um, one, of, one of Moore's aides, uh, you know, they were all coming back to Raleigh last month and they found themselves in this um, scary situation. They're on the highway and someone in a pickup truck comes from behind and rams into their SUV a couple of times. Um, it's a scary situation. He was describing more was describing, you know, they're traveling at highway speeds and someone comes from behind and rams in to the back of their car three, four times. Um, and he mentioned when he was talking to reporters about this, how grateful he was that, you know, they had a skilled um, person driving the car, basically handling the car, keeping them safe. That is um, General Assembly Police Officer Jason Perdue. So um, he is he is my headliner because, you know, we, we got the 911 calls. Everyone can go to our story and listen to them. You can see, you can sort of hear in real time uh, everyone reacting to that situation and sort of uh, handling it pretty um, pretty well. Jason's one of those uh, quiet people nearby that's always like nice and polite and then uh, he's not always in the spotlight, so it's good to give him yeah, the way spot. Way to go, Jason. Uh, Luciana, uh, what's your headliner? Well, my headliner is a little less serious. It's uh, basically beer gardens. Uh, a new one tap yard rally is opening on March 25th and you can bring your dogs there and apparently there's beer for dogs, I think. So, yeah. So I'll be checking that out. And also this is a call for anyone to email me beer garden recommendations. I really don't know many in the area despite really liking them. So, you know. Dogs and beer and maybe soon um, online sports gambling at, during March Madness. <laughs> Try to tie all that up. All right, for our whole uh, North Carolina State Politics team, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for our weekly political newsletter, also called Under the Dome, at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.